Welcome back to Politically Speaking, Holyrood Magazine's weekly podcast, where you'll get the real rundown of what's going on in Scottish politics. We have the interviews, the gossip, and sometimes the laughs. So please join us. And remember, when anyone tells you they're not interested in politics, you tell them you know a podcast that can help them out with that. And you can also rate or review us on Apple Podcasts. So enjoy. So we're recording the podcast on the day that the First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, was meant to be appearing before the Scottish Parliament Committee set up to investigate the way the government mishandled the internal process dealing with harassment complaints made against Alex Salmond and which have already cost the taxpayer upwards of half a million pounds in legal costs to Salmond alone. But as has become the way of these things, nothing quite goes to plan. And Sturgeon's star appearance has now been postponed. The First Minister was meant to be the final evidence hearing session of the committee, which has been beset by all kinds of issues, including her own husband having to be called back to correct or clarify his own words. Sturgeon's was the long-anticipated session of this committee's deliberations, which have become all the more mired in confusion, obfuscation and accusations of it using the complainers in the original Salmon criminal trial as political pawns, but also in the downright confusion about what on earth the committee could ever hope to uncover by way of answers, given the legal restrictions imposed upon it. Indeed, at one point, it looked as if the opposition members of the committee were ready to throw in the towel, given just how restricted the legal bans were on what they could say, ask or do. And with Alex Salmond refusing to appear because of the risk of him being found in contempt of court for simply speaking to his own evidence, it did seem that the committee had reached an impasse. But then, The Spectator magazine challenged some of the legal barriers to all of this and won, well, sort of, but certainly opened the door once again to the possibility of Salmond being able to give evidence without risking his own liberty. All of this culminated late last week in the committee holding an emergency meeting about how to proceed. And with the judge's findings over the Spectator case still to be picked over, Nicola Sturgeon's appearance was put on hold while deliberations continue about when and whether her predecessor can and will appear. And that is worth waiting for, because whatever else this committee is about, it does come down to what and when Sturgeon and Salmond met to discuss the complaints and how that was then processed. And while this committee is not about rerunning the criminal trial of Alex Salmond, or even a committee that is about Alex Salmond, it is Alex Salmond that has been the focus of it all. On Sunday, the BBC broadcast a heavily disguised interview with one of the complainants in Salmon's criminal trial, who claimed that the workings of the committee was making it harder for women to make complaints ever again. And putting aside whether you think it serves justice at all for a complainant to speak under the continuing cloak of anonymity on accusations that led to the acquittal of Salmond, or whether indeed the women involved in the fully discharged criminal case should even be part of an inquiry that is to do with an internal government HR complaints process, there does have to be a question over why the BBC thought that it was appropriate to broadcast just two days before the First Minister was scheduled to appear before the committee to give her evidence and the message that that wished to convey. And that brings me to a wider malaise, just a feeling that something is just not right. There's something about accountability that goes way beyond the committee and into the wider politics and governance of Scotland that appears to be at question. 
There is a tangible unease about the way the government is handling some big issues of the day. And while that is clearly not showing itself yet in any polls about political support, there are enough concerns being voiced privately and publicly to be of concern. And particularly when there's no credible opposition to counter the SNP. There are growing calls for public inquiries into, among other things, the Rangers debacle, the care home scandal, the number of drug deaths and the salmon complaints process. There are internal battles hitting the headlines, there are flawed policy proposals hitting the buffers and so-called political allies are all but hitting each other. In some bizarre ways, this feels more like a failing party leading a fag-end government than the one that it actually is, one riding high in the polls and on the road to yet more electoral victory. It's a strange moment, but has the SNP just been in power for too long or have too many stresses coalesced at the same time? There's a growing unease about the how the nation is being run. I feel it, even if the polls don't yet show it. I felt a similar thing back in 2004, 2005, when Labour still had that huge grip over Scotland. But underneath, something was going awry. They just couldn't see it. And those that commentated about it, like me, got the same hostility and vitriol that we get now when we make criticism of the SNP. And while some long-standing members of government will ignore what is right in front of them for the sake of another go at seeking independence, I have to say I couldn't agree more with the Tory MSP Adam Tompkins who said in the chamber, Scotland has an accountability crisis. Speaking during a parliamentary debate about the scandalous, malicious prosecution by the Crown of two innocent administrators of Rangers Football Club, which will cost the country many tens of millions of pounds in compensation, Tompkins spoke of a wider malaise. He said, We have a parliament that is so broken that it doesn't even know when it's being misled anymore. We have a committee investigating how the government investigated complaints of sexual misconduct when can neither publish nor even hear evidence that gets to the core of its remit. We have a government that uniquely in Europe sought to use the COVID pandemic to insulate itself from freedom of information laws. In addition, wherever we look, we have taxpayers' money wasted wasted on coaching civil servants to dissemble parliament, wasted on lawyers, fees, wasted on Derek Mackay's salary, and wasted, of course, on compensating two innocent men who were hounded by the state in the most agrarious of power. He's angry, you could feel that, certainly. And in this week's podcast, I've interviewed Adam about the issues that have attracted his ire. So Adam, welcome to the podcast. Suppose where I wanted to start is um, ranges, nothing too controversial. I guess for the last year or so, my husband has been banging on about the ranges debacle and I've ignored it because I thought it was all about football. And I suppose now as this is becoming much more public... There is a feeling that was this was this almost ignored because it felt too complex or it felt about football or there are so many other issues around football in Scotland? Um, yeah, maybe. Um, I mean, one, I mean, as you know, I'm a Glasgow MSP and what one talks about Rangers uh, and Celtic um, only with extreme caution uh, in, in this city. Uh, but this has got nothing to do with football. Um, it, it actually hasn't got anything to do with the football club, and it's certainly got nothing uh, to do with uh, sectarianism. Um, what it has got to do with is the extraordinary and unprecedented concession by the current Lord Advocate um, uh, in uh, the courts in Scotland 
um, that the office that he is constitutionally responsible for, the Crown Office, maliciously prosecuted two innocent men. Um, uh, and uh, we know that this has already cost the public purse uh, £24 million, pounds, uh, and that that is the floor and not the ceiling um, of what it is going to cost. Um, uh, and, you know, the, it, we have parliaments for two main reasons. We have parliaments to make the laws for the people of the country, and we have parliaments to hold government to account. The Crown Office and the Lord Advocate are part of the government, and it's our job um, to ensure, it's our job as a parliament to ensure that we, that we are able robustly and effectively to hold the government to account for its actions, decisions, and policies. And if we can't do that, then we've got a real problem uh, in Scotland, because if par- parliaments that can't do that properly are not worth having. So why why is this anything to do with government? Because the Crown Office, which prosecuted these men, is part of the government. And the Lord Advocate is part of the government. The Lord Advocate is in charge of the Crown Office. And the Lord Advocate is accountable to the Scottish Parliament, just like any other minister is accountable to the Scottish Parliament. In just the same way as the Attorney General uh, in the United Kingdom government is accountable to the House of Commons. And can you explain in a nutshell what has actually happened in this case? No. <laughs> nobody, nobody can. I mean, no, nobody can, um, because it's still even now shrouded uh, in uh, secrecy. Um, the Lord Advocate told the Scottish Parliament last week that um, there had been a uh, an, an internal investigation into what had happened, which had obviously resulted uh, in him, in him having to make the uh, embarrassing concession in open court that his department had indulged in a malicious prosecution, but we've not seen the results of that um, uh, investigation. And indeed, there's a real puzzle ab- about all of this because the, whilst the Lord, whilst the Lord Advocate has said that there has been malicious prosecution, he's also said that nobody acted with malice, and this is really puzzling because it seems impossible for me to understand how there could have been a malicious prosecution if nobody acted out of spite or if nobody acted maliciously or if nobody acted in bad faith. For the Lord Advocate to have conceded that there was a malicious prosecution, there must surely have been a finding internally within this internal investigation that somebody somewhere acted uh, in bad faith or uh, out of of spite. And we don't know who that is. Um, uh, And indeed, the current Lord Advocate is insisting that it was nobody because this was somehow some sort of malicious prosecution without any malice, which just doesn't make sense. I'm sorry. Do you think if uh, this had not been Rangers, but had just been another organisation, and that there was an admission that the Crown had pursued people with a a malicious prosecution and it ended uh, up costing the country perhaps £100 million, that this would have been the scandal that it perhaps should be? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Um, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I think it is now likely um, that other claims of malicious prosecution will be forthcoming. This is the first time uh, that the courts have ruled that the Crown Office is liable um, in, a con- in a context of malicious prosecution. Until now, it was a rule of Scots law um, that the pro- our prosecution authorities were immune um, from this area of liability. But now that that immunity has been swept aside by the court, um, I-, I think that we're going to hear a lot more, um, I'm afraid, uh, as, uh, as cases unfold um, about at least allegations, if not findings, um, of malice in the Crown Office. 
Do you think this is a failure of state or an abuse of state? Well, uh, there was a um, an English High Court ruling um, relating to one aspect of this sorry saga, um, in which two very high-powered English High Court judges described what happened to um, uh, the administrators who were maliciously prosecuted as an abuse of state power. That's a quote, an abuse of state power. Um, the way these men were treated, these are perfectly innocent men, uh, the way they were treated is, has been held by the English court to be an abuse of state power. Those aren't my words. And, you know, I mean, I've, as you know, Mandy, I've been in and around uh, law reports for 25 or 30 years as a, as, a, as a law student and a law professor, and you don't see judges making claims like that other than in the most extraordinary of circumstances. So look, I do not know what happened. I do not know who did what. None of us do. It's all con- it all continues to be wrapped in layer upon layer of secrecy um, and mystery and sophistry. The idea that you can have a malicious prosecution without anybody having acted out of malice seems to me to be, um, you know, just beggar's belief. I mean, obviously, you're going back to your academic life when you stand down from Parliament. Can you imagine how you might describe this to students? <laughs> um, I would describe it to students. I would describe it to anybody um, as as an extraordinary um, uh, set of circumstances. Um, but what is most extraordinary at the moment is that um, you know there, there's no head rolling on, on this. I mean, how can you have? Uh, what the English High Court has described as an abuse of state power, costing the taxpayer already tens of millions of pounds, and as you've intimated, you know that may, maybe as much as a hundred million pounds, um, uh, w- without anybody being held to account, without any head rolling. I mean, the, the current Lord Advocate th- seems to think that it's enough for him to turn up to the Scottish Parliament and give an account of you know a very small slither of what has happened. Um, and then to disappear again, as if that's an, an, an end of it. And that, that, that plainly isn't good enough. Um, so, you know, and I've said that I think that this affair uh, is what, just one example of a, of a real accountability crisis in Scotland. And it goes, to the, it goes to the very heart of what Holyrood is for, right? You know, as I said right at the beginning, one of the fundamental reasons why we have a parliament in the first place is to hold the government and government decision-making effectively and robustly to account. And if we can't do that, then we've really got to ask some really deep questions about ourselves. Do you think when, I mean, I I said at the beginning that perhaps my own um, issues about not paying enough attention to what was happening with this uh, story was that it is complex. And there's a number of other issues that are going on at the moment in Scotland that are also complex. You can't just portray them as black and white and people almost lose interest because that's the way things have become. Um, so I wanted to talk a bit about the hate crime bill, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's become embroiled in a whole load of other issues. I mean, what what at the moment are you feeling about the hate crime bill? Um, what am I feeling about the hate crime bill? That's a really interesting question. Um, determined, I think. Determined to get it right. Um, I, I, I think that um, what the hate crime bill is seeking to do um, is and ought to be achievable. Um, what it's seeking to do is to criminalise actions or behaviour in Scotland which stir up hatred. Um, uh, and it's seeking to do that at the same time as 
um, recognizing that we don't all agree with one another, um, that we will sometimes say harsh things about one another. We will sometimes offend each other even in our speech. Uh, and all of that needs to be protected, right? The, the, right to, the right to freedom of expression, which is one of the most fundamental rights in any democracy, the right to freedom of expression extends to, it includes the right to offend or shock or disturb others. It doesn't extend to the right to use threatening behavior or abusive behavior, behavior which is genuinely abusive. It, the, freedom, the right to freedom of expression does not extend that far. But getting that balance right between, on the one hand, wanting to protect very vulnerable communities um, uh, from uh, the stirring up of the deliberate stirring up of hatred in, in, in Scottish society, whilst at the same time, on the other hand, protecting the fundamental right to freedom of expression is precisely the balance uh, that the hate crime bill is seeking to strike. Uh, and it's not easy. Um, it's not an easy balance to strike. One has to take great care um, to define the criminal offences that are being created um, um, uh, clearly and cleanly and appropriately so that we don't risk uh, inadvertently criminalising things which really should not be criminal. Um, and we need at the same time to make sure that our free speech safeguards written into the bill, baked into the bill, are, are sufficiently robust to withstand uh, scrutiny. I have always believed, Mandy, that this is possible in legislation, but it is possible in legislation only um, with a you know, great deal of care and attention. Um, the Justice Committee, which I um, am privileged to convene at the moment in the Scottish Parliament has been grappling with these issues now for months, um, and we will continue to grapple with them until we think we've got them. We've got them right. I, I, I'm confident. Am I confident? I think I am confident. I'm certainly optimistic that we can uh, get it right. The, re the responsible cabinet secretary Hamza Youssef has had, um, I think, a, a good, useful um, attitude to this from the beginning. He's, you know, he's very much had an open door. He's very much been listening. He recognises, I think, that the first iteration of this bill um, uh, was not fit for purpose. He probably wouldn't put it like that, but it, it really wasn't fit for purpose. It did not get the balance right, um, uh, and it did represent um, a significant danger to our fundamental uh, human rights and civil liberties. But we've managed to put that right over the course of the last uh, few months of, it, of intense, um, detailed, careful laborious um, uh, parliamentary scrutiny. So you know, I, I talked earlier about, about you know, what parliaments are for and why they're important. They, 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 and they do two things. They, they make laws for the people of Scotland, or this parliament makes laws for the people of Scotland, and it holds the government uh, to account. And in terms of um, uh, this parliament's ability uh, to legislate properly and really to get underneath the skin of legislation, scrutinise it properly, um, I hope... Um, uh, that what we've done, the work we've done uh, on the hate crime bill will be regarded as um, as, as, well, as, being, as being really good. Um, that's what I've tried to do anyway. I've, try, I've tried to um, lead that committee so that um, we can be proud, irrespective of what conclusions we individually reach um, on the merits or otherwise of the hate crime bill. I want us all at the end of the process to be proud of the work that we've been able to do trying to shine light on that bill rather than just generate heat about it. I mean, at the moment, like many other pieces of legislation or policy, it's become mired in the whole 
mess, I guess, or the mishandling of issues around the reform of the Gender Recognition Act. Yeah, it, it, it has. Um, so, you know, one of the um, hate crime characteristics that will be added to the law um, by this bill um, is transgender identity. So it will become a criminal offence um, to uh, use uh, threatening or abusive words or behaviour with the intent to stir up hatred um, on the basis of transgender identity. That is not currently a specific um, bespoke criminal offence in Scots law, and it will become an offence in Scots law if this bill is uh, enacted. Um, And that has generated um, huge controversy because there are obviously those in Scotland, as there are those elsewhere in the um, the United Kingdom and throughout Europe and the Western world, that want to argue for um, sex as an immutable characteristic um, and want to argue for women's sex-based rights. Um, And uh, um, uh, there is a real fear um, that um, uh, women in particular, but also uh, men who want to make these sorts of arguments, will be caught um, in uh, being meshed um, by the hate crime bill because there will be those um, uh, on the other side of that argument who will want to say that uh, the uh, sorts of arguments that those people want to run are so... Uh, offensive to their own identity as transgender uh, individuals that they constitute uh, hate crimes. Um, and, 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 and look, there is a way out of this. And the way out of this is, is, as I've just suggested, very carefully indeed to define the scope of the offences that you're seeking to legislate for and at the same time ensure that the legislation has robust free speech safeguards. And we are now, I mean, this is work in progress. It's not finished yet, but we are well on the way to, to getting both of those things right, I think. I asked um, Humza when he was on the podcast about particularly about the uh, GRA reforms because they have caused such a mess of debate and the vitriol has been horrendous. And I, I asked him then if J.K. Rowling would ever be prosecuted under the hate crime bill for saying that um, a trans woman is not a woman. And he said that that would not be a prosecutable crime under the hate crime bill. But why have we got to such a point that the very fundamentals of what is a woman is now being discussed? Um, the, the issue with uh, somebody like J.K. Rowling or um, anybody else who makes this, case, makes this sort of argument is not that they run a risk of being prosecuted. It's that they run a risk of their affairs being investigated by the police. Um, uh, it's, the, it's the front end of the criminal justice system, not the back end that I'm, I'm worried about. I do not think that we're going to see uh, prosecutions for hate crimes uh, in circumstances such as this. I agree with Hamza Yusuf about that. And I certainly don't think we're going to see convictions. Um, I don't think people who make the sorts of arguments that J.K. Rowling makes in the sorts of ways that she makes them are going to be either prosecuted or convicted. But I do think that they run the risk of being investigated by the police because of complaints made uh, to the police about hate crimes. And that's what I've been anxious to try and ensure does not happen as a result of this bill, which is why, for example, and this gets very technical very quickly, but um, uh, you know, I have made the argument, and Hamza Yusuf has now accepted the argument, that what we mean by threatening and abusive needs to be understood objectively so that the police can investigate not that which you think is abusive, but that which only a reasonable person would think was abusive. Um, so, you know, 
this is the kind of you know level is we're talking about individual words and individual provisions that constitute individual criminal offences here. But this is the kind of level and detail of um, of scrutiny that we've had to bring to bear uh, on on, the, on this legislation. And as I say, I think I think and I hope that by the end of the process we will have got it right. You you know as well as I do that in Scotland arguments have become so binary and polarised. I mean, do you think that people get offended far too easily these days? Um, look, it's really easy for me to say yes, isn't it? But you know, I know that I'm a very privileged person in Scottish society. Um, I mean, I'm I'm male, I'm straight, I'm white. Um, uh, I'm uh, you know, I've got secure um, jobs, I've got a public position. I mean, it's it's easy it's easy for me to say. Um, sitting in my uh, comfortable kitchen in my comfortable flat in a nice part of Glasgow that people are to it. So I'm not going to say that, Mandy. I'm just not going to do it. Um, uh, I, I know uh, that uh, there are a lot of vulnerable people in Scottish society who feel um, that they have been let down by the system and are unprotected by the system. Um, and, uh, and I don't want our law to make people feel vulnerable. Um, but... Uh, you know, on both sides of the transgender argument with regard to the hate crime bill, on both sides of that argument, um, people have got to understand um, that, um, well, people on one side of the argument have got to understand that even their well-meaning words might hurt and offend and really seriously upset people. And they should think about whether that's what they want their words to, to do. And on the other side of the argument, people have got to understand that there is the world of difference between being offended by something um, and being threatened or abused. We want to criminalise that which is threatening. We want to criminalise that which is genuinely abusive. But we don't want to criminalise that which is, as it were, merely offensive. Um, And, you know... Uh, that, that that's a difficult balance to get right, but that is what the hate crime bill is trying to do. Do you think the hate crime legislation will make Scotland a kinder place? No, I don't actually. I I, I don't think that you can legislate um, for any emotion. I don't think you can legislate for hate to go away. I don't think you can legislate for kindness to come in. Um, I think that what will... Uh, uh, change people's attitudes towards uh, each other's gender identity um, is education, uh, exposure and experience. I mean, I, I just watched over the weekend, I watched the extraordinary Channel 4 series, It's a Sin, which I'm sure you've mm-hmm. seen or not seen, read about. Yep. Um, uh, and, you know, I mean, I, I, I grew up in the, in the 1980s and I remember um, much of what uh, um, was being dramatised in that extraordinary um, television series. I certainly remember the music. It's got an amazing soundtrack. Um, uh, and what has what happened, on one level, it all feels uh, like so long ago that we would be so willfully ignorant um, uh, of, um, you know, uh, the circumstances in which that um, disease was allowed to take root in the, um, in, in the communities in which it did take root with such devastating impact and effect. Um, uh, and what has changed? It's not law and legislation that's changed. It's 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 public attitude. It's it's uh, um, 
and, it, and it's education. That, that, so no, I don't. I, I don't think that the hate crime bill or any piece of legislation can make Scotland kinder or nicer or, 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 or a more gentle place to, 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 to live in. I think that's, that's, it, that's the job of education. And by education, by education, I don't obviously I don't just mean schools. I mean you know I mean conversations like this. I mean uh, you know the sorts of things that we say to each other on Twitter. The, I mean I mean everything. I mean the, the way in which we talk to each other. I mean, just trying to trying to walk a mile in somebody else's shoes. Trying to understand why somebody feels the way they do, and not just um, not just to take offence at it and um, you know reach for the um, uh, jugular. Yeah. I mean, actually, this afternoon, I'm interviewing uh, Helena Kennedy to talk about misogyny and whether that should be within the hate crime bill as a sta- or a standalone. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I suppose, you know, it's 10 years since I interviewed Helena, and it feels a bit like we're going over old ground again. We're still talking about women and the way that women are treated. I mean, do you? how can we change attitudes, do you think? Um, well, I, by looking at the ways in which we've done it in the past, um, I mean, you know, w- w- one of the things that you know, I mean, we're, we're we are so consumed, Mandy, by the by the minutiae of the politics of the moment here and now um, that it is very difficult for us always to kind of lift our eyes and l- look at the horizon a little and think a bit about the past, think a bit about the way other countries have um, experienced the same things, and our politics can get very parochial very quickly, and that's that's not a good thing. Um, you know, if, if we try and understand the ways in which, you know, other comparative nations have changed the way in which they, you know, deal with particular issues or approach um, uh, questions, then I think we can, learn, we can learn a lot. And certainly we can learn a lot from our own history. Um, I mean, this is a much more enlightened country than it was 30 years ago. That's the point of it's a sin, isn't it? Um, you know, this is a much more enlightened country than it was 30 years ago. We're dealing with the current pandemic in a way which is completely different from the way in which we dealt with the AIDS pandemic, if, if indeed AIDS was ever um, a, a pandemic. Um, certainly it was a public health emergency. We're dealing with the current public health emergency in a way which is very different. Um, but, you know, the, what, what drives these kinds of social changes are um, transparency um, and openness uh, and willingness to have dialogue. Um, and this takes us back to the beginning of the conversation. When you have a government which is increasingly consumed by secrecy rather than openness, that's not a good start. Um, yeah, you know, government has a job here to lead, not necessarily to legislate, but to lead and to lead by example. Um, uh, and, and I think that's that's the sense that, uh, you know, that one of the things that's changed over the course of my five years as an MSP um, is, is the sense that this is a government that's, that's wanting to do that. Well, it's interesting because when you talk about us being an enlightened nation, I suppose, I, you know, as you know, I've just written a column where I'm talking about things that don't feel very enlightened. And when you've got organisations like Penn Scotland saying that writers in Scotland are afraid to speak, are afraid to say things that they want to say, and you yourself have highlighted the issues around the, the attempts to strengthen FOI during a pandemic, yeah. do, you, do you worry that, in fact, enlightenment is going backwards? Uh, sometimes, yeah, I do. Um, uh, I, I do. I mean, look, I, mean, I think when you have a government that has been in power for a very long time, uh, it doesn't really matter what the party is. Um, after a while, after a, uh, the, the, you get to a tipping point and, and the, the government starts thinking that it is um, uh, not very vulnerable, not very exposed, and it starts um, uh, covering its tracks. 
Uh, and we've got to that point in Scotland now. It's inevitable. Um, I'm not making a party. I'm a, I am a party political animal, Mandy, but I'm not seeking here to make a party political point. One could see the same happening to the Conservatives um, in John Major's day in the early 1990s. And the echoes um, uh, uh, of Scottish politics now to British politics then are just growing more resonant almost by the day, certainly by the week. Uh, we, you know, the, the atmosphere of sleaze, um, I called it corruption. Um, you called it the fish rotting from the head down. I mean, you know, the, 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 the atmosphere, the smell, the, 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 the sense that um, something, is, something is rotten, something is going, something is going wrong. Uh, is growing. It's growing more palpable. Um, it's, it's not just a sense that is being uh, experienced at the moment by um, opposition uh, politicians or indeed um, uh, commentators who are sympathetic, more sympathetic to the opposition than they are to the government. Um, you know, we can all smell it. If we're honest, we can all smell it. We can all see it. Um, uh, and you know, it, 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 how can it be that in Scotland we are we have the only government in uh, Europe? that sought to use the pandemic uh, as an excuse for insulating itself from freedom of information legislation. How, how do we get to that point? Well, the answer is we got to that point by having a government that isn't used to being scrutinised and, you know, thinks that, thinks that, it, thinks that it, crudely thinks that it can get away with it, right? Governments do these things because they think they can get away with it. So it's our job as commentators, as opposition uh, MSPs, as... Uh, you know, um, you know, people who want to contribute to the sort of public space in whatever capacity we want to contribute to that to ensure that we don't have a government that feels that way. We don't have, we don't have a government that feels it can get away with these kinds of things because governments that don't think that they can get away with these sorts of things won't try them on in the first place. And yeah, Adam, despite all of that, and I suppose that's the strangeness of politics right now um, and the lack, it has to be said, of a credible opposition that allows that kind of thing to go on. Yeah, um, indeed. Uh, they're, 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 they're <laughs> indeed. I mean, uh, you're completely correct. At the same time as all of this, the SNP is still miles ahead in the polls, um, cruising for a, what will it be, fourth successive mm -hmm. election uh, win. Uh, the question is not who's going to win the election, but are they going to get a majority or not? And I do think that's in play, by the way. I do not think it's inevitable um, uh, that the SNP will win a majority uh, in, in May. I think that's very much in play. Um, uh, and, you know, the, the, the size of the nationalist win um, uh, in May, assuming the election does go ahead uh, in May, which at the moment looks likely, uh, it, it, it is the question, isn't it? So, yeah, I mean, it, it is the SNP are in an absolutely extraordinary position. Um, they are tired. Um, they are trying to get away with things that they really should not be trying to get away with. Um, their substantive policy agenda is not very exciting, uh, and it's leading them into uh, territory that is causing them uh, unnecessary grief. Uh, and the hate crime bill is an example of that. Um, you know, they're not tackling the real problems that we have with regard to child poverty. They're not tackling the real problems that we have with regard to school reform and improving the quality of uh, education. They're not tackling the real problems that we have with regard to economic development and the stagnation of the Scottish uh, e economy. And yet, they're still 20 points ahead of any other party in Nepal. Um, so, it, it, you know, it is a very odd moment in Scottish politics, isn't it? So how, how have you failed as an opposition? Oh, that's a really difficult question. I don't know if I have an answer to that. Um, 
uh, I think, um, how have we failed as an opposition? Um, what, is, what, what is the nature of the opposition's failure? The nature of the opposition's failure is that the Scottish political conversation has not been resolutely focused on issues of domestic policy. So our, our, our Scottish political conversation, whether we're talking about the front pages of the newspapers or the sorts of things we debate in Holyrood or the sorts of things that you write about in your magazine, the whole, the whole thing, the, the Scottish political conversation has not been dominated um, by uh, the urgency of school reform, the urgency of alleviating child poverty, the urgency of doing something about the horrendous drugs deaths record that we have in Scotland, the urgency of rescuing the economy from a decade of stagnation. What has it been dominated by? It's been dominated by the goddamn constitution. And what is responsible for that? Lots of things. Brexit's partly responsible for that. Um, uh, the uh, fact that it suits uh, the uh, SNP in terms of holding its coalition together to keep talking about the constitution and to keep, you know, promising, uh, uh, you know, a referendums bill or uh, or IndyRef2, you know, some months uh, away, holding that carrot out there to hold its increasingly fractious coalition together. And frankly, it suits my party too, uh, to keep talking uh, about um, uh, the constitution, because that's how we hold our um, uh, coalition together. So the, 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 the failure of the opposition is to get away from the constitution and to focus on issues of substantive policy that actually affect people's ordinary lives. I remember, I remember being given a presentation by uh, my party bosses um, a few months before uh, the COVID pandemic uh, struck. So this would have been at the end of 2019. And we'd done, they had been doing some focus grouping on the issues that people are most concerned by. And in what were then our target seats, in what was, you remember Theresa May calling this sort of um, uh, left behind, the, 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 the just about managing, so the left behind yeah. towns, right? So in a place like Lark Hall in Lanarkshire, um, uh, what is the number one issue that people want to talk about on the doorstep? Well, we, were, we focus grouped and we found out the answer was skills. Skills was the number one issue that people wanted to talk about. Now, when was the last time that the leader of the opposition in the Scottish Parliament led FMQs on a question about skills? When was the last time that the opposition parties put on debates in Hollywood uh, in their opposition time on policy relating to apprenticeships and skills and colleges and training? You know, we know what our voters wanted us to be talking about, and we didn't talk about it. But you're talking about the opposition like you're a commentator. I mean, have you, are you, have you been disillusioned by your time in Holyrood? No, not really. Um, I, I that, that that isn't the word I'd use. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I feel just enormously privileged to have been able to have been a parliamentarian for a short period of time. Um, I have learnt so much, Mandy. I've learnt so much about how my city works and how it's run. Um, I've learnt so much um, about communication. Um, uh, uh, I've learnt so much about 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 policy and the differences between policy and politics. 
Um, of course, at the same time, I've you know met lots and lots of people and had lots of really interesting, um, developed lots of really interesting friendships with people in all political parties and people in no political parties. Um, it's been it's been hugely interesting, uh, you know, hugely, hugely, hugely interesting. It, it's monumentally frustrating to be in opposition, um, uh, you know, because you, 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 it's not true that you can't get anything done because you can get things done. But it is also true that you can get so much more done in government. Um, uh, so if, if I'm, uh, but no, I don't feel disillusioned. I don't feel disillusioned at all. I feel worried. I'm worried about the state of Scottish democracy. I'm worried about the, 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 the capability of the Hollywood Parliament to do its job of holding the government to account effectively. Um, I'm worried about the, the long-term implications for the, for the health of Scottish democracy that we have had at one party in power for so long and are likely to continue to have that party in power. Um, and again, I stress that's not an anti-SNP point. Um, I am, of course, anti-SNP, but that's not an anti-SNP point. That's a, that's a, that's a, that's a point about the, you know, the, the health of parliamentary democracy does depend on the pendulum swinging from party to party from time to time. Um, uh, long periods of sustained one-party government are not healthy for parliamentary democracy. So I worry about all of those things. Am I disillusioned? No. Am I, am I frustrated that the real challenges that confront um, uh, um, uh, Scottish voters, whether it's the economy or social policy or child poverty or uh, economic development or growth or skills, am I, am, I, am I frustrated that those issues are, are not the issues that dominate the Scottish political conversation? You bet I am. I absolutely am. And I know that there are people in every political party that share that frustration. But your answer, Adam, is to leave politics. No, it is not. I'm not leaving politics. I'm leaving the Scottish Parliament. Um, uh, but I, uh, I do not intend to leave uh, Scottish politics. I, I, I very much hope. I don't know at the moment what, exactly what shape or form it will take, but I very much hope that I will continue to be able to make uh, a positive and constructive intervention or a series of interventions in a range of Scottish political matters, but not from within Hollywood. But what would, what's the biggest thing do you feel that you've learned from your time in Holyrood? Oh, definitely about comms, definitely about communication. Um, uh, I mean, one of the things I'm most frightened of about going back to the law school full time is I'm going to have to learn again to write with footnotes. Um, uh, being liberated from footnotes, um, um, being able to give speeches that don't have to be uh, footnoted in every particular is, has, has been great. Has been great for me. Um, the, the, the way I, I look back now at the sorts of things I wrote about politics, whether it was my old blog or, um, you know, some of the think tank work I did uh, before I was elected. And, and, and I, I would say much of the same stuff now as I said then, but I would say it in a very different way. So I, it, what I've really learned is, I, I think more than anything else, um, about rhetoric um, and uh, expression and, um, uh, yeah, I mean, how you, how you, how you tell stories. Um, um, spin, as I think they sometimes call it. And would you call yourself a politician now? I guess so. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, <laughs> I don't know. I've never, never really been that bothered about labels. Um, uh, being a politician is certainly part of who I am. Do you think when you now that you've been in there and you've seen some of the frustrations that can happen? Do you think it would have made any difference had the Tory party in Scotland gone down the original Murdo-Fraser proposition that it be independent of the UK party? 
would it have made any difference? Mm. Um, I don't know. Uh, I, I, I suspect not, actually. Um, I think that when Ruth was leader, um, uh, everybody knew that she was independent in every way that mattered. You know, the, the, the policy platform of the Scottish Conservatives was set by the Scottish Conservatives. It was not set by London. Um, you know, what, what Ruth did on, on Twitter, what she did on the television, um, you know, was independent of the party line when it needed to be and when it mattered. Um, she campaigned in her own style. She led in her own way. And she developed the party in her own image. I mean, all, all of us who came into the parliament in 2016 came into the parliament because of Ruth. The uh, same was true of the um, Scottish Conservative MPs who were elected uh, in uh, 2017. Um, uh, so I, I think that it's that kind of leadership that matters much more than the, um, than the internal party um, architecture. So are you concerned then that she's not going to be the leader? She isn't the leader. Um, am I concerned? Um, I mean, look, I mean, I, I love it a bit. So I think she's tremendous. I mean, she's the you know, uh, she's an extraordinary politician, um, and it was an you know, I, she's one of the people from whom I've learned most. Um, uh, but you know, she's moving on, and she's 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 right to be moving on uh, in terms of uh, what she what she wants to achieve with her life. Um, and um, we've got a very good leader in Douglas. Uh, he's very robust. He's very strong. Um, he's quite stubborn, um, but uh, he you know he knows what it takes. Uh, and uh, um, it, you know it, it goes without saying, but I will say it anyway. He has my unqualified support. He's going to be great. Why are you leaving? Um. Why am I leaving? I'm leaving because I miss my old I miss my old me too much. I miss my old job too much. Um, I miss my students too much. I miss my books too much. Um, uh, and I have too many days where I feel that Hollywood is not the most effective place to be. The, the kinds of changes I want to see made, the kinds of interventions I want to make, I don't need to be in Hollywood to make them. Um, and 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 you know you know you, you have a lot of responsibilities as a politician. You have, you know. You need to be there. Um, I mean, obviously, it's different at the moment when we're all, we're all working remotely, and I'm one of those MSPs who's going through very infrequently at the moment. I'm doing almost all of my parliamentary work from my kitchen table in my flat in, Gla in Glasgow um, rather than from actually in the chamber. But in ordinary times, in normal times, you need to be there. You need to be there a lot, um, and that means you can't be other you can't be in other places. Um, uh, and um, I've had too many. Too many afternoons where I've been stuck in the in a in a in a Hollywood debate that isn't really a debate at all, but is this procession of pre-recorded speeches um, that uh, is frankly a waste of time. And when it would have been more useful and more interesting to be somewhere else, what would you feel that you've really achieved in the last five years? Um, I think that the achievements are all really small but there's a few of them um and you know it's it, it's it's in the lawmaking so you know the odd word here in the social security act uh, the odd word there in the planning act um the odd word uh, in uh, our election laws we've passed i think three bills in the scottish parliament about election laws and i think i've amended all of them um uh, in the coronavirus legislation uh, in the hate crime bill um you know the the thing i'm the thing I have enjoyed most about being an MSP is lawmaking. Uh, the thing I have probably put most into, in terms of just effort and, and hours, is is lawmaking. And probably the thing I care about most. 
um, is is lawmaking. And so I think, you know, if and insofar as there are any achievements, they are just buried away in the statute book, um, uh, um, hopefully making a real difference to the way in which the law impacts on the people that I represent. In terms of leaving, would we be surprised to actually learn that you and Mike Russell are really great friends? <laughs> um, uh, I don't think Mike and I are great friends. Uh, I uh, have had dinner with Mike a couple of times. Uh, I, I enjoy his company privately much more than I enjoy his company publicly. Um, uh, uh, he is, there, is, there is nobody in Scottish politics from whom one cannot learn, and Mike is certainly somebody from whom I have learned. And would there be anybody that we're particularly surprised that you've made friends with? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I worked very closely with Bruce Crawford in the Finance Committee for, for four years. He was the convener and I was the deputy convener. I wasn't supposed to be the deputy convener. I was only deputy convener because Alec Johnston died. Um, but I, I became deputy convener after um, Alec passed away. And, um, and I worked very closely with Bruce Crawford for four years. Um, on both budgets um, and um, uh, Brexit legislation, that you know, two pretty contentious issues, and we come at it from uh, you know very different political points of view, but but um, uh, but we are very good friends. And as everybody, I mean, you, you've mentioned Bruce and Mike both standing down. Have you got concerns for the next parliament with that that level of experience leaving? And I mean, the plaudits that you got when you announced that you were also standing down was incredible. Yeah, um, people said very nice things about me, but they do when you decide to leave, don't they? Um, <laughs> or uh, die. They don't say them. They don't say them when you're there. Only after you're gone. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, look, uh, yes, I am concerned about it. I mean, there's a lot of experience. I'm not talking about myself, obviously, Mandy, but there's a lot of experience. Um, stepping down not just uh, Bruce and Mike but you know Ian Gray um, uh, and uh, and others I've got a lot of time for Andy Whiteman uh, I don't know if Andy Whiteman's going to get back in um, uh, or even if he wants to um, I would disagree with practically everything Andy says but I mean but he but he says it with real style sometimes and he and, and he's he, he, uh, he he's a politician who are, you know understands the importance of getting the law right um so, yeah, I think I am concerned about it. Um, I, um, I think we all are. I, I suppose that the final thing I would ask you is, would you, if, peop, if any of your students come to you to say, I'm thinking of standing for politics, what would you say to them? I'd say do it. Absolutely do it. Um, uh, uh, do it. But, you know, I mean, my students tend to be, you know, sort of about 21 years old. Uh, and I would say do it, but do it in 15 years' time. Um, we... we, we uh, we, we we don't we there's quite a lot of young politicians in Hollywood and that's quite a good thing but but we what we need in Hollywood are people with oh, it's a horrible it's a horrible phrase but real life experience Adam is, of course, standing down at the next election. And as others have said before me, the parliament will be all the poorer for the lack of his legal brain. Here on the podcast over the next few weeks, we'll be interviewing other MSPs, both long-standing and more recent, like Adam, who've made the decision not to stand again in May. And it is their reflections on the importance of politics and how it's conducted that inevitably enrich debate going forward. So please listen in. Our end of the era series is an important listen. 
as someone much greater than I said, a week is a very long time in politics. And believe me, I know Scottish politics is never boring. So don't leave it long. Make sure you come back and join us on Politically Speaking. And remember that you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and do tell your friends because everybody has an interest in politics.